Lord, we just thank you. I thank you this morning. You're faithful. You're a faithful God. And uh, Lord, we want to lift up to you both Melissa and Kevin. Uh, God, we lift up their families to you as they are uh, just seeing the reality of cancer and the devastation um, that it brings. And Lord, we thank you for hope. We thank you for the hope that you bring in our lives. And Lord, we we thank you for the hope of health. And we thank you, God, for the excellent care that the two of them are getting. And Lord, we just pray for their healing. We pray for wholeness, God. We pray specifically for Melissa, Lord, that that white that her white blood cell count would just stay high, God. We pray that they would be able to stay completely on schedule with her treatment. And Lord, we ask that you would heal her of that cancer. We pray for Kevin, God, that as he just uh, is weak in his body and experiencing the realities of his treatment too, Lord, we ask you just to touch him and um, heal him. We pray for them both, Lord, that they would find strength of heart in you, Lord, and that you'd fill them with hope. And so, God, we, we pray that blessing upon them. Lord, we thank you today that we could just gather around your word. And, Lord, how we, how we need you, how we need you to speak to our hearts, Lord, to hear the still, small voice of our God saying, this is the way, walk in it. And, Lord, we thank you that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and correcting and training and righteousness and rebuking. And, Lord, uh, you know what each of us needs this morning. And we thank you that your word will accomplish the purpose for which you send it. And so, God, to you this morning, we just open our hearts. We invite you to speak to us. We invite you to challenge us. Lord, we invite you to take out the sword of the word and just Remove that fleshly life and bring about the work of your spirit in us. And Lord, we ask your blessing upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on, if you're in, in your Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I'm going to just back up a little bit into uh, chapter 9, and I want to read from verse 24. Chapter 9, verse 24, and it says this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Chapter 10. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us. As we um, dive here into chapter 10, I think it's necessary to just we back up because it was a couple weeks ago that we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and uh, get a little bit of traction as we come into 
chapter 10 here in a sense of what Paul has been talking about and where he's been going in the discussion. In chapter 9, you might recall that Paul used himself as an example of one who had laid down his rights for the sake of the gospel. Um, there'd been this discussion going on in the city of Corinth amongst the believers about food sacrifice to idols and offending your brother and when you can do these things. And, and Paul has been on this theme of teaching that we lay down our rights for the sake of others as we follow Christ. And so as he uh, took his own life and ministry as an example, he defended him, himself, he defended his call and his apostleship and his his. Uh, laying down of his rights um, as he served the Lord and defended his ministry. And at the close of chapter 9, as we just read, Paul compared him, he, called, he compared believers to, um, to athletes running in a race, competing for a prize, running to obtain uh, the goal of the course and the goal is victory, to obtain a prize, a reward, honor, even glory. And when we were in chapter 9, we talked a, a little bit about that, about how uh, Christ has promised that, that when he comes, he will bring a reward with him for those who have been faithful in their service to him. And when we looked at chap, uh, chapter 9 a, a couple weeks back there, we... I talked about these two lines of truth that run parallel throughout the scripture. And they're this. The first one is this, is that salvation is by faith in Christ, by, by grace alone. We're, we are saved as a gift of God. He gives us salvation as a gift when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not something we earn. It's not something uh, we're rewarded for because of good behavior. It is simply and purely the gift of God. It is an act of grace for those who confess Jesus Christ as Savior. But secondly, in the scripture, there is a reward offered to God's people, crowns, the potential for glory, for experiencing victory as we serve God in devotion, not, not out of any sense of trying to earn salvation, but certain, but solely as an expression of our love for God. We begin to serve God and serve his kingdom and serve the purposes of his kingdom. And God rewards those who faithfully uh, serve him. And so Paul was challenged, challenging the Corinthians, run like you're running for first place when you serve Jesus Christ. And at the time when Jesus comes, he will bring his reward with him and reward us for his, our faithful service to him. And so we run in such a way as to obtain the prize. We exercise self-control as we live this life. We discipline our body to uh, keep it under control. Paul says, lest after preaching to others, I myself be disqualified from the prize. And so like athletes, we, we make decisions out of self-control. Sometimes we... Uh, you know, give certain things up, even some things that we might define or consider to be good. We give them up for the sake of winning for the gospel, running the race for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the track that he has set before us. And that theme of, of running for the Lord and, and, 
and making self-sacrifice self and serving him continues on to chapter 10 here where Paul begins to look at Israel and he uses Israel as a bad example in the same picture. And he uses Israel to warn the church against idolatry. Um, and so this morning we're, we're going to simply consider Israel and in particular uh, Israel's experience in the exodus from Egypt to illustrate what Paul is talking about. And so he said in verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. He says, man, you know what they say, ignorance is bliss. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant on this fact. I don't want you to be unaware not to know through lack of information or through lack of intelligence or by implication to ignore these realities. He said, you need to be aware of these things. And he says this of Israel. They were all under the cloud. We know the story amazingly that when God led the children of Israel out of slavery and bondage to the Egyptians in, in the land of Egypt, his presence went with them in a visible, tangible form that they could see with their eyes, the cloud of his presence. The Shekinah glory of God, his presence in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, the scripture tells us. And that cloud served a number of functions for the children of Israel. I, I would say, first of all, it, it was a source of comfort for them to know and to be able to see that God's presence was with them in the midst of the things that they were going through. God was uh, leading them. Not only that, I, I think that they had this sense of security from, from knowing that, knowing that God was going to direct his people. And when that cloud began to pick up and move, the scripture tells us that the Israelite camp would pack up and they would move and they would follow that cloud until it settled in a place. And then they would unpack and, and set up camp. And this continued uh, day in and day out for them uh, for 40 years during those wilderness wanderings. They would just follow the presence of God to the place where he would lead them through this cloud. And that cloud of God's presence brought comfort. During the day, it protected them from the blistering heat of the desert by provo providing a source for uh, shade from the hot rays of the sun. At night, the fire burned within the cloud and it became a source of heat in the, on the cold desert nights to keep the people warm. The pillar of cloud for them was a source of protection. Exodus, in Exodus, we read that when the Egyptian army began to bear down on the children of Israel as they were against the shores of the Red Sea, that the cloud of God's presence picked up and moved from in front of them and went between them and the Egyptian army so that they could cross through uh, the Red Sea with the water as a wall to their right and left, and they moved through on dry land and cross that Red Sea. The glory of God overshadowed the children of Israel all the way on their journey for those 40 years. He says they passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. You know, we know the story of the crossing of the Red Sea, God's incredible uh, power holding back the walls of the sea as they passed through on, on, dry, on dry ground and 
then once they had passed through on dry ground and the Egyptian army under the command of Pharaoh made the decision that they were going to follow the children of Israel through the Red Sea, God by removed his power and the sea returned to its place and the Egyptian army uh, was, was drowned. And so, you know, not only does the cloud of presence represent God's love and power and the story of the, the crossing of the Red Sea demonstrate God's love and power for his children. But Paul tells us this. It's also a picture of baptism. That by passing through the water, all of Israel was identified with Moses. That they identified themselves with him as their leader, as their savior in a sense. Baptized into Moses, Paul says. In the same way, we pass through the waters of baptism and in doing so, we identify ourselves with the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is our leader, that he is our savior. Then in verse three, Paul says this of the Israelites, they all ate the same spiritual food. It's one of the great miracles of 40 years of desert watering, wanderings that during that Exodus time, God provided for 40 years manna, bread from heaven. Miraculous provision from heaven that each morning manna would form on the dew and without fail day after day for 40 years, the people would go out and collect their food and they were fed from heaven, well fed from heaven. And Paul says it was a spiritual food. That name manna, it means what is it? I don't know what it is, but it sustains me while I live in the desert. Sustaining upwards of 3 million people per day. Paul says of them, they, they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. I was thinking about, you know, our stage four Water restrictions. Meanwhile, the eternal well down here in Lower Gibson's is pumping hard. Did you notice that this morning? <laughs> it's running hard. You know, it, SCRD stage four looked like tiddlywinks compared to what the Israelites were experiencing when they had no water to drink in the desert, nothing to drink. And Moses was commanded to gather all the people together and he was to speak to the rock and water would flow from it and it would be provision from heaven. And you know the story what Moses did. In his anger against the people, he took his staff and he struck the rock and it was uh, split open and water flowed from it and there was provision for God and there was water for all to drink and it was a remarkable display of God's love and his provision and his power to supply for his people Israel. And Paul connects some dots for us as he tells this story. He says this, that they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Besides all of the blessings mentioned about Israel, the cloud, the, the passing through the Red Sea like baptism, the provision of bread from heaven, the provision of water from heaven, not only did they have those things, but they had Jesus Christ with them in the wilderness, Paul says. Rabbinical tradition says that Israel was actually supplied with water by the same rock all the way through the wilderness 
that rock followed them on their journeys. I don't know what that means or how that looks like or what's going on there, but that's what their tradition says. Did the rock follow them? Did the stream of water follow them wherever they went? I don't know, but the point is this. Jesus Christ was with Israel in their wilderness wanderings, miraculously providing for their needs. What a blessing. What a privilege that belonged to Israel. We think about their story. They were saved by grace from Egypt. You know, in a sense, it's almost like what Paul says in chapter 9 there, that in a sense, they were running a race through the wilderness, experiencing and reliant upon Jesus to provide for their daily needs as they traveled towards the promised land. And Paul says this in verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. In spite of all of the blessing, in spite of all of the provision for God, the Israelites in the wilderness did not please God. That's what Paul says. They were overthrown in the desert. When Paul says with most of them, God was not pleased, you got to think about that. I mean, do the math for a minute. About that, about, that's probably the most understated thing Paul has ever said in any one of his writings. With most of them, try all of them but two, Paul. Joshua and Caleb. Two men out of three million. Two out of the 12 spies who went to the land. The two of the 12 that came back and brought back a good report and said, God is with us. We can take this land. We got to go in there by faith and take it over. While the other 10 discouraged the people with a bad report. Two out of three million entered the promised land. And God's displeasure with Israel is evident because they never entered the promised land, but they died in the wilderness instead. In spite of all of the blessings that they had, in spite of all of the experiences that they had with God, they never got to enter into what God really had for them. Disqualified for the prize. And Paul says this in verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He says Israel is an example to us. They had the cloud of the presence. We have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. They were baptized in the Red Sea into Moses. We have a baptism identifying us with the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had bread from heaven. We partake in the Lord's Supper and we identify ourselves with the body and blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We eat the body of Christ, we say. We have the bread of God's word, our spiritual food. From Christ, we know, is the offer of provision of living water. Let him come to me, and out of him will flow streams of living and water. The offer of the Lord is this, from the very end of the book of Revelation. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And, you know, as I read this account here in this Things that Paul is saying, I, I think his warning is clear and it's sobering. It's sobering for me. Beware. 
Israel was blessed and Israel had spiritual experiences and yet they still perished. And you know, I think it's so easy for the professing Christian to reduce his relationship with God, to reduce his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ to to church attendance or to some ordinance like baptism or participation in the Lord's Supper, thinking that such things will secure your salvation and that you may go on and live a life pursuing fleshly desires, satisfying the lusts of your flesh. And Paul's warning was that we might not desire evil as Israel did. The issue was one of desire. As I was prepping for this message, all I could hear was Bono singing, desire. It's just stuck in my head, you know. Desire, want, inclination, impulse, yearning, longing, craving, hunger. The word that well expresses all of those things is this, lust. Lust. Lusting after evil things. And though they had experienced the provision of God and his work in their lives, they had a heart that was lusting after evil. We know this, the desire of the heart matters in God's economy. In the kingdom economy, the desire of my heart matters. God weighs such things. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. And there are lessons to be learned from the children of Israel. See, they were not content with the things that God had provided for them. And so Paul gives a, a, really a list. There's five things here that he pulls out. And the first one is this. We are not to desire evil things. We're not to lust after evil. Forbidden things. And Israel failed in the wilderness because they could not say no to evil. They did not say no to the lusts of their flesh, to the lusts of their heart. They could not say no to sin out of their love for God. And the first thing that takes men away from God is always a desire for something other than God. For something other than what God has planned for them and desire leads to participation and entering in and in our desire for God we are called to hunger and to thirst after righteousness and God says as you do I, I'll look after you I, I will fill you with the fruit of those desires I will provide for your needs because God satisfies the longing of soul and fills the hungry with good things Lust after evil or hungry for the presence and the reality of the Lord God. We're not to desire evil things. He says in verse 7, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We're not to be idolaters as some of them were. We're not to worship anything or anyone other than God. And the warning is to believers against, you know, turning away from God into idolatry, whether that's something that's open or secret or consciously or, or unconsciously. You know, 
the desire of our heart can always be turned. You know, you, you can serve the Lord Jesus Christ for many years, as we all know this, and then we can just let idolatry begin to take root and begin to lust after things of the flesh and begin to put things in place of Jesus in our life. Often it's our possessions or the things that sit in our driveway or our bank accounts or uh, some person or something. And Israel failed to keep its focus on God and they started giving themselves over to idolatry. When Moses came down the Mount, Mount Sinai in that famous picture, that famous story with the Ten Commandments in his hands after 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God, speaking with God face to face. What did he find? What did he hear as he come down the mountain? We know that story. He, he, he heard a party. He heard rumbling in the camp and the noise of celebration. And as he came down, what did he find? They had taken off their, their gold and they had fashioned it into the form of a calf. And Aaron had said to the people, Behold your God who led you out of Egypt and the people were worshiping this idol and they were unrestrained in their behavior and in their idolatry and in their pagan worship and their worship of the idol in their worship of the idol they look like all of the nations around them and not like a people called to be separated under God they were no different and, you know you may not have a, a Buddha on your mantle at home may not have a shrine to other gods in your home, but, but the warning is this, watch out for idolatry. Whether that be a person or an author or a ministry or some book or some possession, don't let anything take the place of God in your life. And that's idolatry. We must not be idolaters as some of them were. He says this in verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. I, I, I just think of that word, you know, in, indulge. This means to, to, to commit, to give yourself over to something. And we live in such a sexually confused culture and society that it's actually necessary to bibli biblically define what sexual immorality means. Sexual immorality simply means this, to commit fornication or to have unlawful sexual intercourse. And in the scripture, the only place for, for sexual relations is within the context of a heterosexual marriage. And Satan would do everything he can to encourage sex outside of the context of marriage, and he would do everything he can to discourage sex within the context of marriage. That's his game plan. And Paul says this, we must not indulge in sexual immorality. Of course, we know the words of Jesus, that he helped his hearers understand the full weight of the law, and he even gave it new meaning when he, when he said this, I tell you that if a, if a man looks on a woman with lust in his heart, he's... He is guilty of adultery. And the Corinthian Christians were having trouble with sexual immorality. We know that as we read this letter to them. And Paul's reference to, to Israel refers to this golden calf account where they were unloosed and 
worshiping in all sorts of pagan sexual ways, but it also refers to that time where they indulged and they participated in immorality and idolatry with the Moabites when Balaam encouraged the Moabite women to go in amongst the Israelites and to seduce them and there were wrong relationships and the people of God were unequally yoked and they were guilty of illicit relationships and sexual acts and it was contrary to God's will and it was contrary to God's plan and it was contrary to God's purpose, contrary to God's word, contrary to his heart for his people. Paul says we must not commit sexual immorality. He says in verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and they were destroyed by serpents. We must not put Christ to the test. That means this. We don't challenge the work of Jesus in our lives. The Israelites in Numbers 21 in that account in that story of God sending the venomous snakes in amongst them were at a place where they had become weary in the journey. In the journey towards the promised land and they were essentially soured on the whole idea of the promised land. Longing for the food that they had in Egypt, the leeks and the garlic and everything and They said, why did God lead us to this place to die? And as discipline, God sent venomous snakes into the the camp to to destroy those who would put him to the test. And you know, I'm just reminded of the scripture that tells us when we're weary, what do we do? Are we called to complain against the Lord? Or as Isaiah said, do we... Go to him and wait on him and let our strength be renewed. If you're weary this morning, God's heart is to renew your strength, to give you hope, to to reveal his presence to you, to get you through the day. Not that we would put Christ to the test by challenging the work of God in our lives. Verse 10, Paul says, nor grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. We're not to grumble complaints against the Lord about the circumstances that God has put us in. See, the complaining heart of the Israelites showed them to be self-focused and more concerned with their own desires than they were, to be con- than they were with God's glory. And the truth is this, my friends, God wants you to trust him with your life. God wants you to trust his work in your life. And the Israelites were destroyed, and the warning is clear. Christians can believe that they're safe from being destroyed on the basis of past spiritual experiences or accomplishments. And the warning is this, just straight up, what Paul says, kind of uncomfortable. If it happened to Israel, it can happen to you. And we might think they were grumbling. They were complaining. Like, you know, isn't that a small thing? Can't can't God handle a little bit of grumbling and complaining? And I would say this. You better believe God can handle a little bit of grumbling and complaining. He can totally handle it. What Paul wants us to know and what God wants us to realize is that a complaining heart reflects a self-focused, selfish heart, the very kind that God destroyed amongst the Israelites in the wilderness, and complaining is a small symptom of a dangerous disease 
that says in my life, I do not trust God. So if you're weary this morning, the solution is to wait on God. Not let the disease fester, to not trust Him, but to go to Him for strength and rest and hope and encouragement. And so Paul says in verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so Israel's an example to us. These things were written down for our, our, our instruction. And he says something here to me that's interesting to, to the people upon whom the end of the ages has come. What is Paul saying? Well, the day of our salvation is nearer than ever before. For those of us who live in this church age, the dispensation of grace, we should take warning from the bad example of Israel. Because Paul is saying, in the time that God has placed us, we actually bear more responsibility. We have the word of God. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. We know the realities of the cross. We're not just simply looking forward in faith to the cross like the Israelites were. We are looking back with certainty of knowing the facts that the cross takes care of the sin of mankind. We have the presence, the indwelling presence of the, Lord Je- of the Holy Spirit. We have the, the whole canon of Scripture. And we should take warning from the bad example of Israel because we have a greater responsibility in the time when God has placed us. Paul says these things were written so that you would learn from their example. And, you know, I would say when when you crack your Bible open, I, I, I hope that that's part of your daily life to just flip your Bible open and to spend time receiving from the Lord and receiving from the Holy Spirit and having him speak to you each day. And encourage you. And as you pour over the scriptures, it is God's heart that you realize that God has placed these things in there as very powerful examples for us. Sometimes they're shocking. You read these stories. Some of these stories that I referred to this morning, they're shocking. But the reality is this. We cannot miss their message and we must read the scriptures looking for the lessons so that we learn from the mistakes of others. And so Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Sobering. It's his application, the therefore. Here it is. He says, if I'm going to pull this together for you and to pull my thoughts together for you, you need to realize this, that Israel was miraculously delivered from slavery in Egypt. They were provided for in the wilderness God's intent was to lead his people directly to the promised land. But according to what we just read, lust, idolatry, sexual immorality, testing the Lord Jesus Christ, grumbling kept all but Joshua and Caleb from reaching the land that God had for his people. From them experiencing all that God had for them. And I think about us today. He's graciously delivered us from sin. God's intent for us is that we'd live the spirit-filled life here on earth. 
And yet at the same time, the sins that barred the Israelites from entering the promised land can also prevent us from experiencing the abundant life that Jesus Christ has for us. And Paul says, don't have false security. Take heed. Do an inventory. Don't rest on your laurels. Take heed lest he fall. And then he says in verse 13, this great verse, one that we all know well, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know, it's like you read this, what Paul said, and it's just like, He's gone around each one of our lives and he's just kicked out all the props of false security. I don't know if you feel like that this morning. That's how I feel. Like, holy smokes. He kicked them all out. And I, I love that about Paul. But then he comes and he says this. He points the Corinthians and he points you and I to the to one person upon whom they can rely. And it's the Lord. And he says this. God is faithful. God is is faithful. See, the temptations that seized the Israelites and that were seizing the Corinthians were and are like the temptations that all people have always faced. The temptations that they faced are the same temptations that you and I face every day that we battle with on one level or another. And those temptations, Paul says, can be met and they can be endured when we depend on God to help us through them. Because God is faithful. And part of the problem in Corinth, part of the problem with the Israelites, and often part of our problem, is this, that in the face of temptation, often we're not looking for the way out. We're just looking to dive in and indulge in sin, looking for a way of indulgence. And Paul gives us this warning, take heed. Take heed, let anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. We know Christ has come to, to free us from sin. And there is a battle to resist sin in our lives. Is that not true? I mean, it, every day, every moment, every hour, often every minute, and what a great, didn't you love that video that, that Nada fellow just saying, and he's holding the mirror and he's saying, the missionaries brought us God's word. And now we know God's word is a mirror upon so we can see a sin in our lives. And every day, we need that good long look in the mirror of God's word. We need to be reminded that Jesus Christ died and rose again, not just to free us from the punishment of sin, but to also give us victory from its power. And Paul says this, God will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability uh, to bear it. And in the midst of the temptation, God will always do this. He'll provide a way out. He'll provide an escape. He, he'll provide a mountain pass to get out of that place when we're trapped. You know, the thing about the Lord is this, is he doesn't force us away from temptation. 
He doesn't force us to do good. When the temptation comes, what he does is always provide the escape route. When temptation comes, he always provides the way of escape and he always makes himself readily available to those who will call to him for help. And if you fall into temptation, it's always because you did not heed or you did not listen to the voice of God's spirit within you. You didn't take the way of escape that he provided. You know, I could tell you from my own life, Every time there is temptation, there is always a way of escape. You know that in your own lives. Every single time there's a path for temptation, there is also every time the route for escape. When I failed and when you failed, we had the voice of God's Spirit saying, get out of here, go that way. Run, call on me. We thought, oh, I like it here. I'll just wait a little longer. I'll just check it out. I'll just wait here a little longer. I'll just stay here a little longer. And no, I should have gotten out of there when the Lord said, get out. The way of escape was there and it was my failure and your failure, not God's. And many people want to put the blame on God. Well, well, God made me this way and I just can't help it. And that's not what the Lord says. He says it's our failure. It's our sin. He was always faithfully there offering a way out, a provision. And I wasn't. And so he says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You know, as I read that verse, it's just a short little verse. I, I, it's an application verse again, a therefore verse. And one of the things that I love that after Paul's coming down heavy and it's a challenging text is he says, my beloved, those who are well loved by God, words of comfort, flee idolatry. You can't help but think of Joseph, right? serving in the house of Potiphar, honoring God in his life. And yet there was this constant source of temptation for him in the wife of his master who was trying to lure him into sin. And what did Joseph do? He fled. He got up and he ran. And we need to take extreme measures with our sin. Sometimes the only way of escape is to run for your life. Where do we run? Into the arms of Jesus. Into the arms of Jesus. And, you know, learning to run to Jesus is always a, a sign of spiritual strength and maturity in your life. As that increases in your life, it's a sign that you are growing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Flee idolatry. And so challenging words this morning from Paul and yet full of hope, knowing this, that God is faithful, my friends. And it is always appropriate for us to uh, take an inventory, to take heed, to not rest on the laurels of yesterday or yesteryear or years past, but to have new experiences 
and new realities with the Lord Jesus Christ, to watch him uh, give you victory over sin today, to give you victory over temptation today. And this morning as um, we wrestle through that text, to me that's the challenge right there, personal inventory. And so this morning I'm going to invite the worship team to come and they're going to lead us in some worship. And as they do, uh, I would just encourage you to take the time to search your heart, to take heed, and to do that inventory and to repent of your sin this morning and ask God to renew you and to refresh you and to fill you with his Holy Spirit and to give you strength for the battle. Flee, my friends. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is that you're wrestling with this morning, but run from it and run to the arms of Jesus today as we worship. Let's stand.